Welcome to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand. This show is sponsored by my new book, Recovery. Pre-order your copy at russellbrand.com right now. Unless you're too busy, I understand that you've got other things in your life. Now it's time for Under the Skin. Isabel Losada is a best-selling author and campaigner. Her four most recent books explore subjects such as consciousness, spirituality, and happiness. They are true life accounts of her own experiences. She's been interviewed about her work on shows such as Start the Week and Woman's Hour. Isabel has one daughter and lives in Battersea, London. Isabel, thank you very much for coming on Under the Skin. I'm thrilled to meet you and to speak with you. It's an absolute joy, Russell. Thank you for leaning into the microphone because we want every word to be captured for posterity. Who knows who will hear these words one day? Who knows? Well, some of the things I'm interested in that you've written about is, uh, well, I want to start with consciousness. The Battersea Park Road to Paradise, you explored Feng Shui, Anthony Robbins, Vipassana, Advaita and shamanism, you took Ayahuasca. Let's sort of start, it seems like it was a very sort of a broad scope, uh, your analyses of consciousness in this book. From what position did you start this project? Sounds like Battersea Park Road. <laughs> well, all the books that I've written, Russell, in one way or another over the years have been about happiness. They've been about um, exploring life to the full. Yeah. Because as we know, we're going to be dead soon. We're going to be what? pushing up the daisies. No. <laughs> we are very dead. Very, we're going to be very dead very soon in the blink of an eye. And so I'm a great advocate of doing what we can to be happy and to live life fully, as I know you are. And so I started off many years ago with Bassey Park Road to Enlightenment. And in that, I went to do all the weird and wonderful courses that you can do that help you to become or that say they can help you to become a more enlightened human being. And I wrote about my experiences within them, not in order to make fun of the courses, but typically to make fun of me and my prejudices about the courses. For example, anything that comes from America, we know, don't we, as we're British, that it's slightly dubious. We don't want any of that American. You want to, how do you feel? You know, all that Anthony Robbins yeah, stuff. Yeah, it makes me feel shy. Exactly. That's it, how I feel. I feel very shy. Well, I feel very dubious. <laughs> I feel very, very sceptical. That's how I feel ah. when I look at that stuff. Very sceptical. You feel sceptical of Sir Anthony Robbins' enthusiasm? Because mm. Anthony Robbins is one of those people I Not admire. No, I admire him ah. too now. But I think what I make fun of in Enlightenment is, our, is what's called condemnation before examination, where mm. you condemn something before you actually know anything about it. So Anthony Robbins is a classic example. Everybody loves to hate him. But when you actually go there, I thought, because I only went and did Anthony Robbins in Bassey Park Red Paradise, which is the later one, and I thought I'd hate him. And he came on the stage and in two minutes I just thought wow. he's fantastic. What he do you think it really was good. that made you change your opinion of Anthony Robbins? Who's, for those people that don't know is perhaps the sort alpha of figure one. of yeah. personal development. When I saw him, I thought that he was Superman Jesus and his Netflix film, I Am Not Your Guru, is for me is a, an excellent demonstration of his skills, compassion, his yes. fascinating personal story. Yes. Um, I, I suppose his detractors say that much of it is sort of uh, materialistic or bombastic. Or I mean, what's you, know, you, you said you yourself were sceptical. I think, well, it's one of the things I explore in Paradise is the, is the difference between the 
being our our being nature, which you could call more the Eckhart Tolle, the nature of consciousness, the Muji, and the doing part, which is very much the Anthony Robbins. Mm. And I think we are... May I Obviously, pick you up on that point? Because that's a pretty yes. important point as well. Some spiritual teachers are very much about observing mm. and absolute presence, presence oh. in the moment. I listen to a lot of old Eckhart Tolle. Sure. And it seems to me that what he's saying is observe your thoughts, make sure that you are present in your body, yeah. in your consciousness in yeah. the moment. Don't yeah. let the thinking mind dominate you. Yeah. But you think that Tony Robbins is saying something different. What do you think is this distinction? I think they being? both. I think they both have an enormous use. I think when people are lost and um, lost in their own thoughts and tortured by their own thoughts, then, of course, you need you need the Eckhart Tolle, the Muji, the Advaita tradition. Um, on the other hand, I've seen people come to great spiritual teachers like that, like Muji, who many consider to be a living Advaita master. Like Does Tolle. he live in England, in Brixton? He doesn't. He, he used to live in Brixton. He's now in Portugal. But anyway, regardless, some people come to a master like that and they say, this and this and this terrible thing has happened to me. What should I do? And the master just sits there and says, who is I? Mm. You know, and, and they're, they're pointing in a completely different direction. So from my from my. Well, you think sense, that's too extreme? To go? No, no, I don't think it's too extreme at all. I think it's ultimately the more important question. Yeah. But I think we are in this incarnated life. We are here as human beings, and sometimes you need a bit of Anthony Robbins to say you, you need. You need to. Sometimes I think it's good to be able to say, "Okay, what are my plans for this year?" You know, God laughs if you make a plan. But I've seen a lot of people on this on the what Which you call isn't the helpful. spiritual trail. I'm you, trying my hardest down know, here know, with this plan. I know, of course, of course, of course, of course, of course. So, but but I don't think there's anything wrong with having a plan as long as you realise that ultimately you might walk out and get run over crossing the road in five minutes' time. And so, mm. you, you, but I mean, I've seen lots of people that have got lost in the spirituality and are incapable of making a plan about where they're going on holiday. So I think Anthony Robbins has his place. That's all I'm, that's what I'm saying. I agree, Isabel. But with that thing you said earlier about dealing with the incessant tangled thoughts, the yes. torturous circuits of th thought, yes. I really identify with that. I have that bad, like sort of even to this day. Still. I think so, yeah. Like there are like, there are times when I feel like, Oh, I just want a bit of respite from my own thoughts. How, how do you get on with that? Well, funnily enough, in one of your previous interviews, because I said I have done my homework, mm -hmm. and I noticed that in one of your interviews, I forget which, but you asked your interviewee to recommend five books. Yeah. And I thought, hmm, so if Russell asked me for five books, which five am I going to recommend? And one of them is a book called The Untethered Soul. Yeah, I know that book. I don't know if you've read that book, but oh, yeah. it, it's like Tolly and and. But it, for me, it's clearer than. Tolly. Oprah Winfrey told me it? to read it. Did she? Now that's a name drop, isn't it? Well, I agree. I met with Oprah, Oprah Winfrey. Winfrey, and she goes, "Read this book." So yes. I, I thought. So did you do you it? You better read it because if Oprah Winfrey says read a book, did you read it? No. Well, now but a second, I meant to. <laughs> but, but now, no, I did. Of course, I did. I'm joking. Oh, I see. I thought you meant a second. But, but, but oh, we can okay, talk about it. it. I thought it was a very articulate and beautiful analysis of the systems and constructions yes. we make within our consciousness that prevent us from being free and in the moment. So, did you find any of that helpful in getting you to that? Because I'm surprised, to be honest, Russ. After all the work you've done, that you still find yourself tormented by your thoughts. Because, to be honest, I. 
What you're not I now? Would, not really. I don't. I don't really take them seriously. I oh. I just go. Oh, that's a thought. The good ones or the bad ones. For example, to take a really superficial yeah. example, Go a on. really superficial example, I came back, I'd been for a really great run. Ten minutes after the run, I found, I found this thought go through my head, gosh, I feel really happy. Yeah. And then I realised that, I thought, where did that thought come from? Nothing good happened today. And then I realised it was just because I'd just been for a run. It was just my body feeling good. And that's where that thought had come from. Actually, it was nothing to do with my, with my head. It just... It was body up that particular thought. Yes, but so no, I tend I tend not to take my I don't I tend not. You to think take it my somehow undermines it that it was anatomical in its inception? No, no, just it's an example in that instance of why I didn't take it. You seriously. didn't take your happiness, but like, uh, but these... neither the good ones nor the bad ones. I don't I don't tend to really pay. I don't buy into the thoughts. I don't follow That's them. Good. I kind of notice them and go, mm, yeah, well, that one's all right. But unless they're, I don't torture myself with thought. No. That's a good idea. Um, but these uh, distinctions between the mind and body are increasingly seeming arbitrary to me. The, the, the biochemical origin of an impulse or of, or of, or of a thought. Uh, I wonder where the dividing line between body and mind is. It's a very interesting one. Mm. So this is how we get on to how I did this book, actually, because what, what what happened is I'd written all these books about happiness from the from the mind, body, spirit level. So I'd written about all these courses I'd taken and I'd written about more spiritual things and I'd written about more mental things. And I'd written also about this book about changing the world in which we both interviewed His Holiness, I believe, the Dalai Lama. Um, mm. And I, I that was about pain in the arse, isn't he? <laughs> he, he, oh, don't you go on. Vain he, oh, egomaniac. Let's let's pass rapidly on from that. So, <laughs> so as so as I was saying, and the flatulence. You are naughty. <laughs> no, it's pretty powerful. I don't recall any flatulence in my meeting with him. Maybe no, it, it was me doing that. Maybe, oh. But God, no, tell us, tell us. But no, so what, what I was going to say. So I've written all that. No, so I'm not talking about Dalai Lama today. We've got too much to get through. Him up. No, well, I was just oh. mentioning because I just wanted to say I've also written a book about changing the world. Anyway, so but can't you just quickly? No, say we're about not Dalai digressing, Lama. Russell. We've got to keep on the subject. The subject is sex today. Remember, so. Bloody hell. Isn't it? Well, I'd like to, I'd well, like to try... to talk about consciousness, so... sex, that just came in from nowhere. Okay. I mean, I know you've written Sexuality a book about sex. and consciousness. We okay, will wait. promote your book. Can we... Okay, what I was going to say is, so I'd been writing all this time about these sure. three different levels, and then someone said to me, well, if you're writing about happiness from the point of view of the mind, the body and the spirit, how come you've never written about sex? Because surely that is part of happiness from the body point of view. Pleasure is part of happiness. And I kind of thought about it, okay, why have I never written about sex? And I realised with a with a clinking horror that the, that the simple answer was cowardice, just what pure are you afraid of? coward, absolutely t- terrified, terrified of the what? subject, terrified of looking Why? at the subject. Well, because of all the uh, the, the the prejudice, the, the bollocks that goes around with it. They're one of the main contributors. They are, or can be. But what but I was, you, do feel, you felt fearful of sex as a subject. I did. I did definitely. Can you explain that to me a bit? Um... I felt underqualified. I felt um, not up to the subject. I said, well, I started to explore it, for example, and I just went on Facebook and I wrote, how is your sex life? Please reply personally to my, to my followers and the, and the stuff that, come, that comes in. I mean, I have a theory, Russell, based on my writing of this book, that's actually an epidemic of 
no sex going on out there. In fact, one of the publishers that I approached this book actually wanted me to retitle the book Why Is No One Having Sex Anymore? I refused, but that's what she wanted to call it. Because if you take all the people who, for one reason or another, are not in relationship, and that's a large number, and then you take all the people that have never been in relationship, and then you take the people that are in relationship but are estranged, mm. and then you take the people that are not estranged in relationship but having sex, but the sex isn't good for one reason or another, the number of people that are actually in long-term relationships having good sex, I, th I think is really far lower than any of us know because people don't tend to be honest about mm. it. So, for example, I got letters saying things like, I haven't had sex with my husband for the three years since my child was born and I feel guilty. Or, to quote one woman, I'm fed up with all his pushing and shoving. I don't want to have anything to do with it. So that sounds like a terrible technique. I mean, <laughs> so... And the, but there was a, but there was a lot of this. There were very few people that appeared to be having a good sex life. So and this when fear I realized, that it was you like, yourself felt so the fear seems that, to be yes. uh, something that's governing sex beyond that. You'd like you think that there's a lot of fear and a lot of shame around sex because the things you've mentioned so far is people aren't talking about it. You yourself didn't want to write about no, it, and when no. people wrote back, they're not having it. Exactly. Exactly. So what's going on? And it felt like, and it felt also like the tip of an iceberg. People have become kind of, what, ashamed or fearful around sex? What did you discover when you wrote your book, I, Isabel? I think, well, I discovered a lot, which I'll, which I'll tell you about. But just to answer your question first, I think the, there were a lot of myths out there about, I think, you know, the, the main myths being that we... Oh, goodness, there's so much to tell you about. I don't know where to start. There's a myth of a certain kind of sex that everybody thinks they should be having. Obviously, yes. we've all seen it in the movies. The, the, the Viagra ads that go out on the email 10 times a day saying that men have got to be longer, stiffer, harder, all that stuff. They've got to, you know, that, that a certain type of pommeling sex and that women are supposed to be very responsive and they ideally very vocal. And, and ideally, to succeed, we're supposed to be having simultaneous multiple orgasms. There's a tantric man that I met in this who, who women go to him a lot and he's had women I wish I was making this up he's had women go to him who've been left bleeding not because they've got a period but because the man has honestly been doing what he thinks the woman wants he's trying to please a woman and he's just having long hard sex that he's trying to please her and this of course has come from from porn and the porn is starting younger and younger and and so you get a situation where women lie about the sensation in their bodies because they want to please the man they don't want to say, darling, actually, I can't really feel you now. I don't really feel that in my body. And they and they don't want to tell him that because he's doing his best he can and they're worried about his ego and so then they keep quiet. So, that, so the woman then is not giving the man honest feedback about what she's experiencing. The man is doing his best to please her. And so because the woman then can't be honest, women are very bad at taking responsibility for their own experience. Many women, I should say, Many women, maybe I should even say some women, but many women that I know and have spoken to are bad at taking responsibility for their experience and they, they want the man to be happy. Now, the thing you said a moment ago yeah. about this, there is a disjunct between people's expectations of yes. what sex should be and their experience yes. of sex. Yes. It seems that this is, in a way, a problem around communication rather than sexuality in essence. Do you think there's something quintessential about sex that makes communication on a verbal level problematic? The answer to that is yes, but I think it's because, again, we've all been fed this myth about the way sex 
ought to be mm. from the earliest age now. And children, heaven help them, younger and younger, are watching a certain kind of sex on television and on porn and uh, mm. that they don't realise is performed. And so mm. they think that they have to produce that experience. Both the men and the women uh, are suffering from this. Yes, I think you're right. I learned sex from porn, but I also was a initially it meant that in my when I first began to have sex as a young man I was very very frightened and felt very very inadequate but somehow my experience and understanding of sensuality did alter in conjunction with my awareness in other areas of my life and so whilst I acknowledge that sex is a distinct category my sexuality whilst there are areas where it was clearly well one could argue that it was problematic because of the level of promiscuity it did become an authentic expression of who I was and I hope was about communion. I would hope that I was very sensitive about the person or people that I was having sex with and their experience of it. So, but that I would not decry the point you're making about pornography is giving people a very warped understanding of sex, not least that it is a commodity, that it's an objective experience that's designed to bring about pleasure. Yes, and not even just the pornographic um, variety of sex, but th this idea that sex has to be red hot, as if red is the only kind of sex there is. And I think what happens with a lot of new relationships is that they go in and they've got this idea of this red hot sex and everything's wonderful, but it's as if red is the only colour. Mm. So if we take that analogy and we put that into food, I mean, it's like someone's discovered an Indian meal. They've gone, oh, this vindaloo is really fantastic. So every time they go back to the Indian restaurant, all they want is the vindaloo. They've mm. forgotten that there's a thousand other flavours, or with art. So what other flavours did you discover in sex and how should we <laughs> explore them? The main thing, the main point that I'm making in my book, and I'm not an expert, uh, Russell, unlike mm. many of the people you have on this programme who are experts in their field, I'm not an expert in my field. I'm a learner in my field. Mm. So what I did is I, is I started this book, I was in a new relationship and I wanted to explore all the different things that can be explored out there in order to make sex into better sex. So I started off on a range of courses and things that I went on so for example I started in a in a women's tantric workshop cool and how'd that go well this is the the starting point for most women if they want to explore their sexuality is to take men out of it altogether and to and to to do a women's workshop um all the details of all this in the book but if I just mention a couple of things that happen in that is mm. that one of the things that is required of women as I say in order to take responsibility for their own sexuality is to learn to be comfortable with their bodies so one of the things you had to do in that workshop was get your kit off basically how did you find in that in front of in front of a room and uh, in front of a uh, a room of other women other people was it embarrassing um it's for many, many women, it's extremely traumatising to be asked to do that. I've, I've been and doing men. This, I, well, I'm not anyone. I, I, yes, strangely so. Even though in a, even though I was saying to myself, "Come on, Isabel, you know, you do this at the, you do this at the swimming pool. You know, what's the matter with you? It's fine. Shouldn't be doing but it at the swimming pool. <laughs> in the changing rooms. Fair enough. She adds hastily. Um, but but for some women that that can be a very traumatic experience. But 
when you see women there who don't fit the... Because when you see 50 women all in the room, you know, all with their different bits, their different shapes, their, the wonderful, with the wonderful range of shapes that we all are, you think, how as a society did women get conned into thinking that we've all got to be a certain shape and a certain look, which is what women have been? So women typically... Yes. For example, another, another tragic example of that, I've got a friend who's a masseur and she tells me that nine out of ten women, when they get undressed for a massage, will apologise for their body. Oh. Oh They'll God. say, oh, my tummy's a bit flabby. Oh, I'm awfully sorry, like, my bum's a bit big. She said men... Chronic epidemic shame. Yes, of, of not being happy with their bodies. Whereas mm. she says a man, no matter what his body looks like, his big guts hanging out, whatever, he never... Men never apologise. So I thought, I thought that was really interesting as an example of how women feel about their bodies. So in these workshops, you have... You, you, the, they, they, the women who run the workshops start by getting a woman to feel happy with their body. Mm. And when you see a woman who's, for example... What we would call a beast, who's maybe had three children, who's a mm. bit flabby, and she's standing up going, I love my arms because they remind me of, of my love for my children. I love my breasts because they I, I fed my babies with them. I love my stomach because mm. they reminds me that I gave birth. You know, I love my... And she really is happy with her body. You look at that when she's outside society's norms of what she ought to be happy about, and you go, wow, that 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 is inspiring. And if she can feel like that about her atypical body, then why can't we all? And then, of course, the following morning, the women are all in the showers and some of them have got big saggy boobs and some of them are flat-chested and they're all going, wow, look at yours, aren't they? You know, and women are having fun in a way that you don't normally do in society. So it seems like a reclamation of the body by the self that's previously having to live in editorial accordance yes. with a pre-existing male ideal. Zizek talks about this, that we project the coldness of fantasy onto the female body, particularly within sex, so we're not having an organic experience but a kind of enactment of patriarchy where men are taking downloaded preconceptions of what sexuality and the sexual experience should be and imposing it on women and it's one of the many strands of misogyny under which women toil. So you found that that... Yes, but I wouldn't make men entirely responsible. Like, women typically have very, very ambivalent feelings about their, their bits, their vulva. They, mm. they, for some reason it's become ugly in a woman's mind. Like right. one of the people I see in this book is a man who who did this amazing sculpture called The Great Wall of Vagina. And what he does is he does casts of, of women's vulvas and he puts them all along the wall. It's an amazing thing. And you look at them and... And it's a very, for me, it's a very powerful piece of art because we, we look at them and we go, oh, that's gross. Most women will look at that and go, oh, that's gross. And sometimes, I mean, the, you can put them up and they'd say, well, I wouldn't know which one was mine. And specifically, women have been trained by porn magazines to feel that if the inner labia are protruding, that that is ugly. And that's why labioplasty now is the, the largest form of cosmetic surgery because women are having the inner lips removed so that they look like what women look like in the porn magazines. What we've discussed so far is that sexuality is uh, like subject to a lot of repression, that mm. people aren't having as much sex as people think they are. Yeah. You, and then you've taken us... Isabel, into the area that it's, there's women feeling a lot of shame about various aspects of their body and not taking responsibility for their bodies. How does this whole idea, this fascination, or yeah. this project at least on sexuality, intersect with your other work about consciousness and happiness? I think... Obviously, we are spiritual beings. We we know that mm. we know who is looking out of the eyes. We know the body is an illusion. We know that this meat package, as some of the spiritual teachers call it, is not the ultimate reality. 
Yes, and if you live in alignment with that, you're yes. likely to be to some degree liberated from a sense of shame about the particular aesthetic condition yes. of your body. Yes. That, 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 that we can also agree. So that's an obvious relationship between yes. sort of our, our sense of spiritual self and our personal connection mm. and sexuality. And I think my own personal sense of shame has, relate, has influenced my sexual behaviour. I think there's some of those, I've worked through some of those issues. I, I, my relationship with my own body has changed as a result of my sexuality. When I didn't feel confident sexually earlier in my life, I think I felt a lot of shame in my body. At a time where I felt like I was sexually fulfilled, you know, like and, 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 which I think in itself was pretty complex, Isabel, because I think I was you know, working through addiction really in, mm. in, in, in a sexual forum. But what I did feel was I felt uh, present and confident in my body, probably like those men that are coming out of swaggering into massages, flinging their pants on the chair, doing a blow off and saying, work mostly on my shoulders and inner thighs, whereas women are coming in and apologising. That made me feel sort of quite sad that. But uh, I think it's an important idea, this idea of shame and fear. And I think that that's sort of what, you you know, the, the point of uh, your book's conception about, oh, people aren't having sex. I, I, th- I think you're on to something there. I think that, that feeling of fear feeling powerful and present in your body. Mm. I think certainly it helps if we realise that we are not the body and that, if you like, this is all a game, you know, in the typical yeah. Buddhist sense, and this is not reality. That certainly, is, that certainly is helpful because you put less importance on it. But that feeling of being happy in the body is quite rare, I think. I don't think there's many people walking around in an incarnated sense, happy in their sexuality, celebrating their sexuality, and the whole of society. I mean, where everybody's made to work so hard that they're so stressed, they don't even have time. I mean, like one of the things that I've kept going, kept saying since I wrote this book all the time, is make pleasure a priority. But Pleasure? Yes, pleasure rather than sexuality, because specifically I'm talking about sexual pleasure. But the reason I, I the reason I'm using those is this words, where we could get some of them different flavors, not just the red hot, but we could get yes. cool blue or deep yeah, green exactly, sex. Exactly. Ha, give you're, us some examples right of that because I don't really understand what you mean. Because I would like to know more about that. Well, one of the things I'm told um, that people do that people do wrong in in long term relationships is if something works. If they if they're having a sexual experience that goes well, then they go on doing that. They go on doing the same thing. Yeah. Um, what should we do? Well, we need to we need to explore the whole tantric area. So what I'm recommending for your for your study for the next ten years, Russell, if I yeah. might be so bold, to suggest Please. a new area of expertise for you. Yeah. There's very few people out there that actually study sexuality and become experts. I mean, if you remember, there was a time when Sting talked about it and everybody ripped the piss out of him, didn't they? It went on for about 10 years. Yeah. It's one of the things, when I think of Sting, I think about the police for about 10 seconds. Then I think about that bloke with a plate in his lip. Then this tantric sex stuff where he said... Where I know, but 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 people love to make fun of him about that. But oh, it was yes, on tantra. To it. Tantra isn't that where you just stare into someone's eyes? Well, the answer is no. It's not. Tantra is where they actually take the study of sexuality seriously. And good for him if he studied that. Yeah, good on and him. I what was, did you learn though? Well, I, well, what I wanted to say from the man's point of view, some of the things that I recommend you might like to consider learning. Go on. Like from the male point of view, obviously not being a man, I haven't I haven't studied this. But there's a, one of the things that we did as we as we went through the couples workshop. There's there's a, there's a practice and. Maybe you've done this already, Russell. You've done lots of things in your life. But there's a practice where men can learn to separate the orgasm from the ejaculation. Yeah, so no, I haven't learned that. They, How'd you do it? It sounds a bit hard. 
Well, it's it's one it's one of the disciplines that can be learned. So one of the things that my my partner and I did when we were working on this book is he chose to take this not prompted by me, I have to say. He chose to take this thing called the 21-day challenge, which is where you go for 21 days without ejaculate. The man goes for 21 days without ejaculating. And it's a really good discipline to explore because what my experience of it from from the woman's point of view is that if you take away the orgasm, if you stop chasing doing what they call orgasm chasing sex, yeah. if you stop doing this red hot, we've got to be red hot. Mm. And you take that away completely, both for the man and for the woman, and the man's deliberately trying not to ejaculate. I think men then worry that... you can open up the whole of the rest of the, of the whole of the rest of the colour plate. Well, that, well, I think the concern is there with men is there's a concern that it's difficult. The erection won't be sustained if the intensity or indeed on just very pragmatic terms, yes. the friction drops. Like if you just sort of think, right, let's... I don't know, lounge around for a moment. Like, I, I think there's a, this fear is that the right. erection won't be sustained. Different if you're having, I think, sex with strangers and that, because there can be a lot, the intensity is so high. But, like, in a, in a situation where there is familiarity, yes. how, how does one sustain, like, you know, you and your partner were doing in this? The, in the tantric world, they actually used friction-based sex as a derogatory phrase. They say, oh, oh that's friction-based sex. I can see why. Um, it's low-life sex. It's... It it is actually because I mean even during the even during this period of it's the long ball game in football it's like just boot it up. The thing is, Russell, there's a whole other like I don't know how much time we've got left, but you know you read in the notes, no doubt, that one of the things I did in this book is I attended this international conference of clitoris stroking. I mean, one has to mention that. I have yeah, to suffer. Tell me my, more. I have to suffer for my art, obviously. Who does? Um, <laughs> did you? Is your clitoris stroked at the international <laughs> conference for clitoris stroking? It is. It's a hands-on conference. Go on. What? Tell us more. We need four hours for this interview, you realise. So what I was... I was reading my way through... Whilst I was working on this book, I was reading my way through all the, the tantric and the sexual literature. And I was reading a, a guy called Mantak Chia, who's one of the, the, the people who advocates this separation of the ejaculation from the orgasm area for men. He wrote The Multi-Orgasmic Man, The Multi-Orgasmic Couple. But it was, an, it was pissing me off, those, though, that his writing, because it was all very male-based. And so I spoke to this woman who ran the Shakti workshop, and she said, oh, don't read all that. Read this book called Slow Sex by Nicole Daydon. So I opened Slow Sex, and in the middle of Slow Sex is this amazing exercise yeah. where the basically it's done outside the bedroom and it's done with a light, and with a light on and the, in a certain way that unfortunately we can't quite demonstrate because the cameras don't go down that far. But the the woman lies with with her legs open. The man is fully clothed and he with his left hand, he holds her, he holds her, her vulva open. You can get the book. You can yep, read yep. the book later. Vulva and with this open. finger, with this finger. Index strokes, finger on the left hand. Yes, with the left hand, because you're more gentle. He learns to stroke the clitoris. So he's holding back the skin to reveal the clitoris with yes, his yes. finger and thumb. Finger and thumb are pulling the vulva open the from vulva top open, gently. Gently, yes, obviously. And with this finger. Index and, and finger. With the lube of the right. The leader. Vis, with the lube of the right viscosity. Isn't that a great word? Viscosity. You can't if you because if you use coconut oil, it goes all over the place. So you need you need their proper lube. But anyway, with the proper lube, you stroke. Can't we use saliva? Very gently. No, it wouldn't. Got to be proper lube. No, no. You need 
the reason is because it needs to stay at the right viscosity. Because oh, okay. what I was going to say is it's a discipline where they encourage you to stroke for 15 minutes. So the man is literally stroking the clitoris for 15 minutes using this finger very gently, as she says, no more firmly than you would stroke your eyelid. No more firmly than I'd stroke my eyelid. I give that guy very, absolute respect, my little eyelid. Very gently. I'm stroking it now. woman, actually. That who, or, who, but anyway. Like, if you was, say, a mouse had done very well at school, <laughs> you'd only stroke it, so you'd go, well done, mate. You've done really well. That, and you'd just give it a little stroke on the top of its little bonce. All right, but 15 minutes. Now... <clears throat> Don't you think the conversation? On. And what goes that, on? What goes on in that? Can you talk? What? Well, it tends to be quite... But no, you don't talk other than for either the woman to make requests or the man to make requests. So the man might say, for example... Can I stop Would doing you this like... now? <laughs> no, no, not at all, Russell. Not at all. I'm starving. What I was going to say... No, what I was going to say... Where's my dinner? <laughs> I'm joking, I'm being silly, No, I sorry. know, I know, but actually, it, but I don't on, want you to be minutes. because it's very exciting. It's, it's very enjoyable for the man. What happens? What the man what happens? is learning... Were you doing ma- it with your partner? What, didn't yes. have just some bloke from Listen, the conference come what the man, What the man is learning as he does this is he's learning how to completely tune in to the woman's sensation in her body because what normally happens during sex is because the man's sensation is easier to access and it comes mm. fast and it comes stronger, that he very soon loses touch with what she's feeling. He's not completely tuned into her. So, you I mean, you're very interested in connection, aren't you? Yeah, I think it's the thing I'm most interested in. Right, and this is something that teaches a man to really connect with the way the woman's feeling. I'm going to do it when I get in. And to sense it. Well, you... So, so I started to do this because I because I, I I'd read about this in the book, and we started my partner and I started to practice this at home. He didn't and then mind. we discovered what's his name, your fella. We're not mentioning that because he's. Let's he's just not, call him Baz. No, so you get home <laughs> and you say Baz. Okay. Put the set the alarm clock. No, no, no. Ish. It would be the other way round. He would he would say, "Have you got time to do this?" Tra-? It's because it's only fifteen minutes. That's the, that's the other thing. So yeah. it's not difficult to fit in. It's and you have like, no objective. It's not like oh, there's got to be no, an no, orgasm. No, no, no climax. It's just fifteen minutes no, of stroking. No, because what you're doing is you're exploring sensation. You're exploring right. the sensation of the woman's body. But the but the, but so we we started to do this practice, and then we discovered that there's people, lots of people in London, lots of people in New York, lots of people in San Francisco doing this practice, and men practice this with lots and lots of women. And so it's a bit like learning to play the cello. You can, it's like one of the guys that did that said, you know, once you've seen one clitoris, you want to see them all. So they're, they're learning how to, how to tune in to women's bodies. Well, hold on a minute. This is when I did, like, when I was sleeping with different people, yes. I became aware that yes, female sexuality wasn't uniform in any respect. Of course, like of course. what you said there about tuning into them, yes, this is very, very true. But also what you said about male sexuality always being dominant. No, I discovered quite the contrary. Not, yes. But when you house the female sexuality correctly, you unleash a very, very... In fact, yes. I said this once to Helen Mirren and the great director, Julie Taymor. I said to them, I think that the root of patriarchy and misogyny is the historic and evolutionary knowledge that the potency in yes. female sexuality Yay. is governing, that there is a dominance, that when female sexual energy is unleashed, which I'm proud to say I saw many, many times. You've occasionally unleashed it. But it was like, ah, oh, this is nature. This is a storm. Yes. There is a sort of the, the low mechanic of male sexuality was a sort of ran on a level that was a bit, okay, boss, was a bit chimp energy. Yes. Whereas female energy was like some sort of living forest, some conflagration of yes. green, some storm, some flow. And I said it's beautiful, a bit... Beautiful, beautiful. Some, thank you. Sometimes I said it's a bit frightening for yes. a man, I said. But, but the interesting phrase that you used there, Russ, is 
when you house the female sexuality correctly. I did, didn't I? That, that, which is a lovely phrase, and but there's not a lot of that going on. And, right. And, and the thing Come on, is, everyone. Heterosexual men, make an effort. Well, the interesting thing is, Russell, is that, that men will go out there, they'll, they'll do some crap job seven days a week, they'll work till they drop, and yet Pigs. they won't even read a book. No, but they won't read a, they, they won't read a book. Because sex is such an important part it. of your life. Get on, like, learn it properly. Learn it properly. So hold on, what have you recommended? Slow sex, that's what I'm definitely going to read that. And th- what happens after this 15 minutes? That's just a tune-up. After the 15 minutes? 15 minutes, then go... Come what strictly come dancing. You know, you 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 go out. I mean, sometimes in the morning, you 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 would go out. I would go out literally feeling like I was walking on a cloud, or it it. it well, so it there's raises, no sense. You do 15 minutes it. of that. Is there more stuff? One of the other things I'd like to say, I'd like to talk about briefly from from the women's point of view. Mm. Um, is I went to a I went to a workshop called the Love, Sex and Intimacy Fair during the during the, oh, during wow. the workshop What's that like? where there was all kinds of things going on and there was one workshop billed as the greatest sexual secret that women need to know. So we were sitting around outside afterwards trying to work out what this secret might be and when we got there, what they were actually talking about was the health of the pelvic floor muscles, Ooh. which... I could talk for half an hour just on that, really. But basically, the pelvic floor muscles are really important for the sexual health, both both of men and women, because what happens is they don't they don't get talked about. It's not known about, and so women don't like. So historically, there was this doctor called Doctor Kegel. You know, that's why they're called Kegels. What happened with this patient of his is that she had become incontinent. And so she went off to Dr. Kegel and they were supposed to be having an operation. And Dr. Kegel said, OK, before you have this operation, just go away and try these exercises. To, so see if you can strengthen these muscles so that you're not peeing in your pants all the time. So she went away. didn't say it like that. Well, poss- possibly. So she goes away and she does these exercises for a prolonged period of time. And she finds, and it's, it's actually in the, this is in the medical records, that she was having sex at that time with her not very happy husband, presumably once a year, yeah. and had never had any kind of positive experience and purely as a result of really tuning these muscles six months later she was having sex once a week and had experienced her first climax so the importance of these muscles are greatly misunderstood and for example in in france after women have children the the gynecologists talk to them about this but over here this isn't talked about at all so much so that incontinence pads for women are one of the best selling products so pelvic floor muscles are really important to exercise. We've learned some very important mechanical things here, Isabel. Would you please tell me the name of this book? The book is called Sensation. Sensation. Obviously. And what I've learned about uh, from talking to you about female sexuality and some of the mechanics is that we are not approaching sexual relationships in a very conscious and connected way. We're not. And it's very interesting to hear a woman speak uh, plainly and mechanically about sex. It's a subject that I suppose I have empirical experience of because I was like for 10, 15 years single and um, sleeping with different people quite regularly. I suppose in retrospect, many times simply repeating the same experience. But when there was, when there was connection, it Mm. was quite, quite wonderful. Quite wonderful. I know, I know in this interview that you wanted to speak more about the consciousness. I don't mind. I've had a very nice time I've kept on going, I've kept going back to the mechanics because my experience is a bit like any art form. Unless you've got the basics in place, then you can't have this wonderful experience. I think you're right. Because when I think about sort of tantric sex, I think like, you know, unless someone's it's about you've got to do these things you know it's not going to be it's the abstract stuff's not going to you're not even going to access it like knowing something like the 15 minutes stroking as if it was a mouse that's done very well 
not a school because it's both, but it's the head when it's the mouse, so it doesn't matter if it's you know because it it's wasn't the, the mouse's upper left hand <laughs> quadrant is the most sensitive bit, Ross. So upper left hand quadrant. Upper left hand. When the woman's lying down, the upper left hand quadrant is the most sensitive bit. I mean, this so is very practical skills. So, so what? The title under the skin has never felt more appropriate because we are literally talking about what to do under the skin under to the achieve skin. better so, results. So, the, but the main, so the main thing I'm trying to say in the book, go on, is say take, it. Is take Take sexuality seriously. Go out there, explore. Because typically what people do, if they're having a bad time in their relationship and the sex is no longer red hot, they just go and have an affair. They don't right. think, how can I learn about my sexuality? How can I make this the study as I'm recommending for you for the next 10 years of your life, for I'm the gonna... sake of your gorgeous new wife? Become an expert in, in all the tantric areas. I'm going to learn this stuff. We're going to learn this together. Good. Sensation, adventures in sex, love and laughter. Isabel Lasada. Isabel, thank you for this. Will you give me a copy of this book? Because this is a of subject course, I think Russell. is important and I want to learn a lot more about. Of course, of course. I'm really grateful for you. You must have you did a really good job in this interview. You conveyed such a lot of information in a short time frame about an important and neglected subject, yeah. sexuality within relationships. It can be a difficult thing to talk about. And I think you've done really, really well and I'm very grateful to you. Thank you very much. Thank uh, you. I was only slightly frustrated because there's so much to cut in and so much to talk about. This is the problem with life. This Limits. is the problem with all your interviews, I guess. There's always so much more that you could do. But thank you very much You've for having brilliant. me. It's a joy to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. You're lovely. Thank you. Thank you. This show was sponsored by my new book, Recovery. Pre-order your copy by going to russellbrand.com. If you like the show, please subscribe and review it in iTunes or wherever you got it. And only give it five-star reviews in case I'm reading them. It could hurt my feelings. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.